Taupo, home to New Zealand's biggest lake, great trout fishing and lithium extraction technology. It's here local company Geo40 is developing technology to recover lithium from underground. Taupo company turning geothermal waste into battery grade lithium. Lithium is a key component in rechargeable batteries used in phones, laptops, cameras and electric vehicles. It also costs more than 15,000 New Zealand dollars per tonne. As electric cars become the norm, demand for it is skyrocketing. Electric vehicles will increase global lithium demand by as much as 51 times in the next 20 years. But mining for lithium is the complete opposite of what EVs represent. The extraction process pollutes soil and water while emitting carbon of its own. That's where Ohaki-based company Geo40 comes in. Kia ora, I'm Jessie Chang and today on The Detail, how this Kiwi business is using innovative technology to become a world leader in sustainably extracting the world's hottest mineral. We think the market is really waking up to the carbon footprint of these materials and so therefore the, the opportunity to be that ultra low or low or, or zero carbon supplier is really exciting. The government's backing them too, recently announcing $2 million for Jiro 40 to scale up operations through Carnor, the Regional Economic Development Unit. What does this mean for the economy of the wider region? We've got international scientists there, 40-odd staff on site. I think it's going to make a, a, a big impact. John Worth is the chief executive of Geo40, and he explains what lithium is. If you think back to third form science, lithium is the third element of the periodic table, which means it's very small uh, and very light molecular weight. Uh, and that's you know, part of what makes it so difficult. To source. And so what is it actually used for? Uh, lithium has, I guess, become the one of the base minerals in battery technologies. There's a no- number of other minerals that play a role in batteries. They're not just used for cars, though, right? No, I think, I think there's a lot of focus on, on EVs, and the reason for that is that that is, I guess, one of the most demanding battery applications where there's a real focus on, on the energy density of the battery. Um, if we're talking about grid storage batteries or the sort of battery you might have on the side of your house, you know, being charged up by solar panels, um, those batteries, of course, it doesn't really matter how bulky they are or how much they weigh. But, of course, that's not true of an electric car where we're very focused on the space it takes up in the car and how much range that battery will give you. Um, that's where um, there, there really aren't any competitors for lithium as the base technology of those batteries. So how much lithium would you need to power an EV? There's a lot of uh, different battery capacities out there. Uh, you know, whether the car is, has a 100 kilowatt battery, 100 kilowatt hour battery or, or more or less. What we know is that uh, certainly that the amount of lithium being, being um, sourced uh, looks like falling hugely short of the demand across the automakers. So we currently produce about 400,000 tonnes of lithium. By 2030, that's likely to jump to around 2 million tonnes. And so to close that gap will mean lithium supply having to come on stream really, really quickly at rates we've never had to grow this before. Lithium's been a a fascinating commodity market, I guess. The sort of pricing that's been around for quite some time is around about that 10,000 US dollars a tonne. So that's Um, roughly 15 grand in New Zealand dollars? Correct, correct. But because of those supply shortages, um, we're seeing extraordinary spot pricing in terms of Chinese spot pricing where uh, that's now reached sort of $50,000 a tonne for the first time. Wow. So I think that's really just a just a symptom of, of inadequate supply in the market. 
long term long term pricing looks more like being in the in the kind of teens, maybe the fifteen to eighteen thousand US dollars a ton. But certainly that's um, a very attractive price for anybody in the lithium supply game. And where do you normally find lithium? There's really two predominant sources of, of lithium at present. Uh, it's either mined out of hard rock, uh, typically in Western Australia, and that, that rock type is called spodumene, so it's a, a rock that contains you know, a small amount of lithium, and that's, I guess, the traditional mining route. Uh, and the other source is out of, of what we call brines, and, and brine is just a word for a salty fluid. And we tend to find these in, in what's called the lithium triangle in South America. So that encompasses um, Argentina, Bolivia, and Chile. And so these are old, uh, very old salt lakes where at relatively shallow depths, there are these very saline, very saline fluids. Uh, and just to give you an idea, salt water you know, in the sea is typically about 3% salt. Mm-hmm. And these fluids are, are typically around about 30% salt. Right. And so that the, the way the way lithium sourced out of those fluids is it's brought to the surface, put in these huge, you know, absolutely enormous evaporation ponds, and over a couple of years the water is evaporated off, which leaves those salts behind, and there's lithium in those salts, which is then uh, I guess separated from the other salts. So both of those methods uh, have a pretty uh, pretty high carbon footprint, um, and I guess are under pressure. Uh, environmentally in terms of the impacts they have on the environment. What we're seeing in South America is um, because all the, the fresh water is evaporated off into the atmosphere, what you're left with is extremely concentrated salts. Uh, and they, they've tended to find their way into the groundwater um, and, and therefore make drinking water supplies undrinkable. Uh, and, that, and that's starting to cause some real problems. Every tonne of lithium through hard rock mining generates about 15,000 tonnes of carbon dioxide. Water evaporation ponds aren't much better. It uses 2 million litres of water for every tonne of lithium. That's why Geo40 is looking at direct lithium extraction. So that's the process of, uh, of I guess, trying to get the lithium directly out of these fluids uh, rather than through evaporation. And to understand how it might work for lithium, we have to first look at silica. The Provincial Growth Fund has awarded $15 million in funding to a topor company which extracts minerals from geothermal water. They call it green mining and it sees this valuable mineral, silica, extracted and then hopefully exported We've been successful with recovering silica from geothermal fluids. We operate in this extraordinary ecosystem. We, we're on uh, Ngāti Tahu's land. Uh, there are kaitiaki t- um, on that land, and they um, hold us to account in terms of our environmental performance. And we also have a number of them who work for us, uh, you know, as incredibly talented operators. You know, beyond that, we sit on Contact Energy's Ohaki Geothermal Power Station. They've been an extraordinary partner in, in giving us access to that fluid. And some of that geothermal fluid Geo40 uses is actually waste fluid from Contact Energy's power generation at Ohaki. Geothermal power works by bringing up extremely hot fluid from wells deep underground. The steam and liquid power turbines which generate electricity. Up until now, geothermal waste fluid either gets pumped out into local waterways or re-injected back underground where it came from. But actually, the waste fluid is itself dense with a range of useful minerals and elements which aren't used for power generation. You know, we are the first company on the planet to uh, to get colloidal silica out of geothermal fluid at scale. And we sell that product all over the world. 
we start small, we start in the laboratory, uh, then we tend to build pilot plants or, you know, small pilot plants. We have one in Japan and one that travelled around New Zealand. Uh, that then proves the process on a range of different fluids. You know, you know these fluids are all a bit different. Uh, and then we tend to scale up. Uh, so what we did with silica is we built a $3.5 million demonstration plant. Uh, we've had that running for about four years now. Uh, that then makes a, a quantity of product which we can share with customers, make sure it technically meets their needs. And then we move to the next step, which is a full-scale plant. Uh, and we commissioned our full-scale silica plant in February last year. Uh, and I guess that's just as we'll do with lithium. That's really proven to the world that we can not only develop a technology, uh, but actually scale it up successfully um, to something that's commercially you know, relevant. With silica, what is that used for? So the best way to, I guess, to understand silica is it's, it's, it's a natural nanoparticle. So this is a tiny, tiny sphere, I guess, of really what is purified dirt. It comes out of the ground. You know, somewhere between 4 and 14 billionths of a metre in diameter. And what that means is it's got very, uh, very unique physical properties. So by way of example, you can be used in paint to reduce the amount of titanium dioxide needed um, in white paint because that silica spaces the molecules further apart. Uh, it's, used, uh, it's used in casting, refractory, a uh, whole range of sort of applications. And, and how much does silica sell for? Well, it's depending on the market, but around about that $900 US dollars per tonne. Mm-hmm. Um, depending on the application, but it's it's quite exquisite. Um, not only is it entirely natural, but our our way of manufacturing it is extremely low carbon, which our customers find to be, uh, you know, in this day and age, very relevant. Mm. So, so what is the carbon footprint of this method? Uh, so, our carbon footprint is, is very low. It's it's less than two hundred kilograms of CO two per per ton of product, um, which is a you know a fraction of of conventional manufacturing methods. And, it, and we find it fascinating. This is something we've been talking about for some years. And, you know, a year or two ago, that was a bit like selling ice to Eskimos. But in 2022, that, that, gets, a, um, that gets real interest from customers, and it's helping us to open up um, high-value markets all over the world. And what we've been working on for about three years now is, uh, is the process of doing exactly the same thing, but I guess with the hottest mineral on the planet at present, uh, lithium. We use physical processes like ultrafiltration, uh, using temperature, uh, we, we deploy a bunch of physical processes to manipulate that fluid so we can get the lithium out. And just to give you an example, uh, what we are in essence, I guess, is, is we've developed some skills around processing huge quantities of fluid. At our silica plant near Topor, uh, we're processing about 7 millilitres of fluid a day wow. um, to recover okay. silica. So that, that, that's really the skill set. Uh, you know, we have been successful in, in getting um, some lithium out of geothermal fluids in New Zealand so far, but they're present in very in very low concentration. So it's unlikely that would be commercially viable at a large scale, but it was incredibly um, helpful for us to prove that we could do it um, on the fluid that we're currently working on uh, at Ohaki uh, with the Nadi Tahu Tribal Lands Trust. And our job in 2022 is to, is to sort of start looking at those fluids in bigger quantities, uh, making sure our process works, and then work, work through... Uh, where we might, um, you know, create real opportunities. Geo40 hasn't done a life cycle assessment on the carbon footprint of its lithium process yet, but the government is already convinced, announcing $2 million to scale up its operations. It's also not the first lot of money Geo40 has received. Yeah, in 2019 they advanced a $15 million loan, but that loan contained a provision where uh, they could convert $5 million of that loan into equity. Uh, okay. And in 2020, I think, 
Uh, we were thrilled when they decided they would actually take an equity stake in the company. Um, and I guess that showed a level of belief in what we're trying to do. Uh, and they've, this investment in lithium is, is again, an equity stake. Uh, so they're, they're a significant shareholder in the company. Uh, we think that's quite strategic and quite powerful as we start looking at leveraging our technology offshore to mm. have the government as a partner is, help, is helpful. Um, and, and I think that's why we think, although the sums of money uh, in this case aren't huge, um, the symbolism is quite significant. Has Jiro 40 broken even then? No, so so we our silica plant near Taupo, our commercial scale plant, that will be profitable as a plant, uh, we hope, later this year, uh, which is great. But, of course, we've electively chosen to uh, to continue to invest in things like lithium recovery, um, and mm. that comes, of course, with, with R&D costs um, associated with that. So, you know, we know that lithium is a hugely important part of, uh, of us as a company, um, and there's this extraordinary imperative to find a sustainable way to source um, lithium. An industrial estate car park in Cornwall is the last place you'd expect to find some high-tech Kiwi innovation. But in a shed at the back, you'll find this, Geo40's plans to save the planet, alongside its local partners, Cornish Lithium. We have a number of, uh, I guess, relationships that we value across the world. Uh, early 2021, we started um, testing international fluids on our technology, albeit at quite small scale in the laboratory. So we, we pulled lithium out of Cornish Lithium's fluids. So that's a, a company in the UK that, is, is again, is, has some land with some fluids underneath the ground that are quite rich in lithium. So we successfully pulled lithium out of that fluid. Uh, we've done the same thing with, with some fluid from Argentina, from that lithium triangle I mentioned earlier. Mm. And we were successful in pulling lithium out of that fluid. And, of course, we, we'd also pulled lithium out of fluid at Ohaki near Taupo. And... The reason for that is that all of those different fluids are a little bit different in terms of what's in those fluids. So for our technology to be globally relevant, we need to prove that we can work on uh, a range of different brine chemistries. And will you be looking for any other minerals or is it just lithium and silica? Look, silica and uh, you know, silica and lithium have been our primary focus, but we've always planned to be a multi-mineral company. So we're doing some work in the US with some partners, including the Department of Energy, uh, looking at cesium and antimony, two other minerals that are present in geothermal fluids and are extremely valuable, very hard to source. A lot of these minerals are known as strategic minerals, and many governments list out these minerals as being in critical short supply. And a lot of them we find in, in geothermal fluids. Um, so there's a natural fit there. Uh, we've also um, done some work on boron, um, which is starting to find a, a role in battery chemistry. Um, timber treatment and a range of other applications, but our um, our hypothesis is, is exactly the same across these minerals. You know, we want to be the company that can sustainably source these strategic minerals um, from fluids and provide an alternative for our customers. You know, who are perhaps sourcing them from extractive mining at present. Mm. Uh, if we can offer a green alternative to that, we think that's a compelling um, proposition. For the wider Taupo region, what's happening with Juro 40 is exciting news, especially as COVID starts to bite. Just in the last couple of months, I can feel it in the air. Things uh, start to come to a bit of a grinding halt. That's Taupo Mayor David Trewavis. So we have basically four income streams. Pretty pretty close to 25% uh, of each quarter comes from four sectors of the uh, business community, which is the uh, first one is forestry. 25% of our income came from tourism. 
Uh, 25% came from agriculture, which is our, our, our vast uh, amount of pasture land, and 25% is uh, from the geothermal industry. We're producing 25% of New Zealand's power now through our hydro and uh, geothermal power stations. So um, that's the maintenance of those, the rebuild, the building of new ones and the ongoing um, supply to the national grid. So uh, that's the four main streams of income, which gives us about $2.8 billion of GDP. He feels lucky that Juro 40 is creating revolutionary technology right in the backyard. Wonderful product. You know, um, we've got international scientists there, 40 uh, odd staff on site. And luckily, they've got the pay packet to go with it. So the downflow effect, our furniture shops, our haberdashery store, whatever, they all contribute. They most of them buy local and it's just a, it's just wonderful for our community. But we've got to be mindful of the fact that some people are not so well off in our community. So I always think it's a reflection of the people at the top of how, how we look after those people as well. So, But uh, those people um, have been a wonderful addition, that's for sure. And Juro 40's growth couldn't come at a better time. For 2021, the financial years 2021, up until last December, we were absolutely in boom times. We were 7.5% ahead on our GDP. Now, I think the average GDP for New Zealand is about 5%, so we were well up on that, and uh, we were having a great time, mainly from construction, geothermal, new power stations going up, all that sort of thing. So but just in the last couple of months, I can feel it in the air. Things uh, start to come to a bit of a grinding halt, which is um, a bit of a shame, but I suppose was anticipated was anticipated by the economists uh, two years ago, but they were about a year out of date. Uh, it's only just starting to come to fruition now, I suppose. And why do you think it's only come to fruition now? I think the novelty of people seeing the country themselves, you know, like our tourism spend was about the same. But it was so filled up the Yeah, last year. So it was filled up, the international space was filled up by the domestics. You know, people probably hadn't been for Topol for a long, long time. They might have come here as kids, but they've been going up to the Fiji and the Rarotongas and the Goldie and that sort of thing. But they've decided to obviously visit us, which is which has been fantastic. It's kept us going, to be honest. So we've been very, very lucky. But of course, they've done that now a couple of times. And, uh, you know, they're thirsty for international travel. So I think they're just waiting for those borders to open and then they'll uh, they'll cut loose overseas. It's that high-end product, you know, the Chris Jolly outdoor tours on the lake, uh, the uh, Hooker Lodge, the Hilton Hotels, that sort of thing, they really start to be affected now. You know, they had that good domestic boom, but just in the last six weeks or so, actually the figures reflect it, uh, just, a, you know, the late December, uh, January GDP uh, was down 20-odd percent uh, just in hospo spending. So um, we are starting to see that. Uh, decline now. Yeah, tourism uh, is really, really, really uh, sad. So, you know, just please anyone from New Zealand that haven't been here yet, if they could come and visit us, uh, they'd be uh, truly appreciated. Here's John Worth again. I grew up in Taupo. It's come a long way as a tourist destination. It's a fantastic place to go on holiday. Uh, but as we've seen, you know, tourism tourism's had a tough time. And I think being able to build, um, and I think, I think the opportunity in and what we're doing in the geothermal space is to is to work hard on creating you know jobs right up the value chain. PhD chemists, highly qualified engineers, you know senior operators. These are these are valuable jobs that we can bring to to the region, and I think that's a real opportunity for us. It's attractive to our staff. Taupo is a great place to live, and so that helps us to to attract great people. And you know we I think it's a wonderful place to to do business and 
particularly in that ecosystem of great companies uh, and great and great people. We're so lucky that we've got those four income streams. The, you know, the geothermal is just an outstanding product, you know, totally renewable product. And uh, we've got contact energy that are going to spend within the approximate of 2.5 billion in the next three years. So, you know, that's wonderful news. So we are very, very fortunate. Um, and, and it's reflected in our growth. You know, we're approximately 40,000 people. When I first got the job, we were probably about 30,000. So, mm. you know, people are coming to live here too. Very desirable place to live. Why do you think there's such a boom now in Topol? I think it's just such a lovely place and there's something for everyone. And, of course, as I said before, the four income streams, we don't, you know, no disrespect to Queenstown, but 95% of their income is from tourism, you know. So, and fair enough, they've got the product for it. But we've, luckily, we're, we're the centre of the largest contiguous forest in New Zealand. Uh, the geothermal extraction, you know, they're unique benefits to us. So we just, we're trying to utilise them in a, in a good way, in a sensible way, in a, in a way that we can grow the, our GDP, but still maintain this beautiful uh, area uh, as it is. The region has had other recent funding from the government too, upgrading Turangi streets, nearly $6 million for a new airport terminal in Topor, and... The latest project is a $25 million transportation project around our CBD. So I'm not too sure if you've been much to Topol, Jesse, but what happens is when you do your shopping, you don't really know the lakes here, if you know what I mean. So we're connecting the lake with the CBD, with nice pathways down so the workers can go and have a swim at lunchtime and all that sort of thing and, mm. and rerouting the heavy the heavy traffic uh, that we do have uh, for our CBD. So unfortunately, we've gone from a one traffic light town to four traffic lights. Can you believe it? In the, My goodness. In, in the six months. <laughs> so <laughs> what is we're really coming up. Come, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're coming of age uh, and a couple of new roundabouts too. And uh, the debate over roundabouts versus traffic lights is always very interesting too. Uh, I've discovered we've got about 1,200 engineers, uh, traffic engineers in town now uh, <laughs> that all have their point of view. So, uh, no, it's uh, it's looking really lovely. We're transforming from a, a small provincial town, as it were, to a, I call it a mini metro. So, uh, yep, had to come and we wouldn't have had this sort of growth since the 70s, I suppose, when they started sealing all the roads and that sort of thing. Um, so uh, we're excited about it. That's it for today. I'm Jessie Chang. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and is a joint newsroom and RNZ production. You can download us free to your mobile phone every weekday on any podcast platform. Adrian Holle engineered this episode, Sarah Robson produced it, and thanks to John Worth and David Trewavis. Matewa. 